the Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Hey folks, Jason Bond in the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville, Mississippi. Tom, greetings Hi. again. Howdy. Justin is back with us. Good to see you again, Justin. Thank you for having me again. Uh, Justin made the drive down from Verona this morning. We're always appreciative, uh, one, of getting somebody in the studio in person, but then, two, Justin going out of his way to make that happen for us. So we're certainly appreciative of that. This is going to be one of those episodes like we had done a few weeks ago, kind of pre-recorded, guessing on topics that may be relevant when the time comes. So we'll get to that in a minute. But Justin, you know, when you were on with us before, you kind of gave us an update on what you were doing now since you had been on with us previously, but I think that had been a couple of years when you were talking about your rice project that you did in school. So I know you got, you're married, you got a couple of kids now. How old's your oldest son? My oldest is 19 months. My youngest is four months. So okay. I have a big disaster at my house, but we take it a day at a time. Think about this for me. Say you fast forward another 19 months. He's going to be three, three and a half. How would you explain variable rate fertilizer applications to your three-year-old? Go. I, I, you got me with that one. I, probably not a lot of explaining there with him. He's kind of a life broadcast, and de- life and death, broadcast life and death situation. everything at one gonna, time uh, kind of guy. How are you going to explain it to him? I guess I, w- I was <laughs> Stumped him. He's Done, got me. Tom. He's got me. If you give him another minute, I'm afraid he's going to come back at you with something because every to... guest so far this morning has. My, my... I have the keyboard, though. I could just hit stop, and it's done. I won. But you told yourself earlier before the first podcast recording this morning not to push stop yeah, because that'll cause you stop. all sorts of editorial problems. So maybe Justin didn't get you on a stump, but I did. Yeah, hit and stop. That could put you in a whole other realm. That's right. You need the editing. little thing on there like they had on the movie Apollo 13. Don't push this button. Yeah, so now Tom's telling you more secrets about my limitations in podcast production. Thank you, Tom, for letting the cat out of the bag. Sorry I had to roll that back around. You know, that's what I'm here for. All right, Justin, so when you were on with us before, we talked about nitrogen on corn. We talked about some PNK on a variety of crops and save some topics that we wanted to cover. So again, we recorded this several weeks in advance of dropping it. So really don't know, have any idea what the weather is going to be like. But we've done a decent job with the other episodes that we did kind of doing the same thing. Just kind of stay general in expectation of a somewhat normal crop year. First off, let's pick up where we left off on corn. Okay. And talk about that last application on corn that you alluded to in the previous episode. If somebody wants to go with a three-way split of nitrogen. So let's, uh, but I think there's a little bit of art to that yeah. that tassel nitrogen application. I see you, see you grinning there. So just give folks an idea of what that is and how you execute it. Yeah, you could call it an art. But basically, um, here, especially in the Delta, um, in irrigated environments, running that urea by via airplane um, right before basically our reproductive as we as that corn goes to tassel, um, and really we do that to make sure that that barring everything else we've done in the past, that we make sure that that urea is there when that corn crop goes to reproductive stages, and that it's it's ready for the rest of the year and to be able to to push all that nitrogen into the plant and up to the year itself. Normally, I guess producers run about a hundred pounds of urea which is 
46 pounds of, of nitrogen at that stage. So if they've planned on that, then they've probably cut back their rates slightly. Um, oftentimes this is on top of, of close to a full rate. Um, and that's why it is what we consider a little bit of an art, right? Because nitrogen is going to be your most limiting factor. Uh, you know, barrel staves, it's the one that if the water leaks out of that one, you've well, got a big a barrel problem. Stave? So the barrel and stave theory we talk about, I guess, infertility a lot. Your smallest stave of the barrel, I guess, is going to be as high as you can fill it, right? So if you have one that's four feet high and one that's two feet high, you can only put water two feet high so your yield goal is only going to get to that two foot level when you you could have reached something four foot if you don't fertilize corn you're going to expect to not make a lot out of it especially with a nitrogen application you can go from 20 bushel of corn to 200 bushel corn just by having that nitrogen out there um so that that's what i mean when i refer to that is that um, also liebig's law of the minimum there you go see time disease pyramid law of the minimum totally stumped over here <laughs> Totally stumped. Pathology. But I listen. <laughs> I listen to the podcast, and I'm learning. Who talked about the Liebig's Law? Well, that would be Bobby. He had a slide. He showed it everywhere he went, so I'm sure he said it at one point. Your task application, we say it's a little bit of an art. You know, if we plan for it in there, it's going to make sure that corn has those nitrogen needs when it demands it. And that's the main theory behind it. And with our capability, with the amount of planes we have, especially in the Delta area and in the state as a whole, um, it, it makes sense to, to kind of spread that nitrogen out as far as you can. Um, and as we split those applications up with all the loss mechanisms we have here, it reduces probability of that happening. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how we got, you know, to where we are, um, especially as we furthered our technological advances with our urease, urease inhibitor products and, and things of that nature, kind of like we talked about in, uh, in the last time we were here. Some people have gotten away from that, but it's still a very common practice. And it, it, and it absolutely has its place and, and, it, and it works. Um, you know, it makes sure there's a lot out there. I think we, we have some over-fertilization going on. I'm, I'm not going to argue that point. If someone wanted to ask or bring it up, um, we try to not bring it to the forefront. But, but it's certainly there, and that's the thing. It's a simple fact of, like I said, with the barrel and stave, as long as you have that one full, you can move on to something else. Um, and that's kind of where we've been, especially with those nitrogen applications, because if, if you guess on the low side of things, you're going to pay for it. If you guess on the high side of things, you might have paid a little bit extra, but you're going to have that yield goal that you want there. And so with that tassel application, we want to we want to make sure that it goes out right at that V10 between VT. You really want it out as your tassels start to emerge. All right, um, how do I four. tell that? Because I work in rice, split stems, completely comfortable with that. Well, luckily in corn, it's easy. We're counting leaves. So when you get those, about that 10th leaf, and if you really look closely, you, can, you should be able to see that tassel forming at the top of that plant and really but is the 10th leaf the 10th leaf i thought there was a thing and i'm wading off into something i don't really know about right now but is there a thing about the bottom leaves falling off so i know yes. you know if i'm if i'm counting nodes on cotton they're not going to do that by that point they should do that later in the year that's um, typically a reproductive and when those stages. bottom leaves slough off that's usually a sign of you ran out of nitrogen and it moved them from the bottom leaves of that plant and pushed it up into that ear leaf. Okay, so I'm going to remember this on the next one. I'm going to reference it and I'm going to prove to Tom again that I was listening and learning something on the podcast. So what are you saying about me? I'm not saying anything about you. <laughs> well, uh, actually I am because you gave me that dig on the disease pyramid versus triangle that I'm not going to let you live down. Back to tassel nitrogen. To the art. The art of tassel nitrogen. We shoot for before that tassel really, really throws itself. Sometimes we get a little bit late, but we want it to be right in that stage before it really goes reproductive so that by the time it rains, that nitrogen has mobilized in the soil. It's available for 
basically the remainder of the time when we, as we go reproductive and we're building that ear itself. And so those are kind of the reasons I went over why we do that. It may, it may bug the, the disease man over here a little bit when we over, when we over fertilize some things. I don't know how he feels about it. Well, I was going to ask you a question about that because typically when they make that application at, at pre-VT stages, for lack of a better term, they do end up with a little bit of injury. Should people be concerned about that minimal injury? Well, so from a fertility point of view, I have, we don't have concern about that minimal injury. Now, from the disease perspective, do you have concerns about that injury? No, not necessarily. It's more aesthetic than anything. Correct. It's absolutely aesthetic at that point in time with some other crops as disease vectors and things of that nature. But our corn crop as a whole, I think we do pretty fair on disease and get away with a lot down here. We do well. Do you, would you agree? Or? We, we do better than what, than what you would think about from a textbook line of thinking with as much humidity and moisture as we have we don't have a tremendous number of foliar disease issues and i'm excluding the whole rust conversation from that it's an aesthetic look that burn will go away usually it usually goes away really after the next rain or two you really can't even hardly see it um after a couple weeks question here what's the cause of the burn and what can exacerbate it so ammonia volatilization is the cause of the burn that as that urea converts to ammonia it volatilizes and as that ammonia gas escapes it falls down basically in the in the whorls in the where that leaf meets the stalk itself and it will hold some of that urea that was flown on top as it leaves the plant it it burns that tissue as it does Um, the biggest exacerbation would be heavy dews in the morning before we get a rain when you get that little bit it starts to hydrolyze on the plant itself and it and then it will burn as that ammonia gas escapes into the atmosphere can it be avoided by just time of day of your application or can it help I mean, because there's still going to be some prills that drop into that world that are going to be there when you do get some moisture there but can you help that a little bit correct so early morning is going to be the worst time that happens um, but it can sit there for for multiple days so if you get it a day before a rain you're not likely to see that it's when we have you know, say we have a long dry stretch when all the corn starts to tassel. So that's when you can drive through, especially the delta area, and see, you know, every little bit of corn will have a little bit of leaf burn. Not every bit, but a lot of it, a large majority. And that's one of the big differences in, say, an irrigated and a dry land environment. With an irrigated environment, if, if you go on with that, you can you can push the water down, you know, a day or two later and incorporate that urea that, that did make it down to the ground floor. Whereas in our dry land environments, we need to be a little bit more cognitive, maybe of using a urease inhibitor again, uh, kind of like we talked about, those Agritane MBP, MBPT products that most retailers should have readily available. Not as common on that later stage application because of the time of year and, and that it is kind of an addition to the nitrogen that we have out earlier. But it's still a very usable practice and, and a good piece of technology for us to utilize out there. Um, if you get in a dry land situation, even if they're calling for rain, if that urea sits out there for a week to 10 days, you're going to lose a large majority of it, which is what you're probably trying to make up for with that shot to begin with. So that's one of the things to keep in mind that I recommend always having some kind of nitrification urease inhibitor with any nitrogen application we make in the Mid-South, corn, cotton, um, all the above. Assuming that we get a timely rain or irrigation and that nitrogen application gets incorporated timely, how efficient is the application at that particular time? It's a two-sided question. So the three-way split application is probably going to be our most efficient practical application method right as we split that nitrogen up and we spoon feed the crop little by little it's going to be our most efficient usage at that timing 
you could argue, as you see some of that burn that we're talking about, that that's not necessarily the most efficient form to get it there. But but it's what we have and it's what we can deal with. Because, you know, you think about it, you really, in those earlier stages, you try not to see a lot of burn. If you, have, if you see a lot of burn from those applications, you probably – you've lost a significant amount of nitrogen. And that's basically what that is, is nitrogen loss, right? So you're certainly losing some of the atmosphere in the situation just because it's so hot, it's so humid that time of year. And within that plant canopy, it exacerbates both of those things. And it's hard to get all of that down to the ground floor. But the three-way split is still going to be your most efficient as an overall tactic or technique, I guess, if, if that makes any sense. So talk about tissue sampling. You see lots of information on Twitter, blog posts. Lots of people like to talk about it. I'm sure that you get a lot of questions about it. What's important from a tissue sampling standpoint? Which leaves should be selected? And how should that factor into making a decision as to what product to apply potentially? Good question. Tissue sampling is is always something that comes up all the time with fertility and as we discussed earlier with an art, it's a science and an art, if that makes sense, from my perspective, from, from where we sit today. So tissue sampling can provide very valuable information. The information that we get from tissue sampling, I believe our producers should use in its own context. So the best way that, that when we use tissue sampling is where we see we have a problem. And that's the easiest way to identify a problem and double check or correct ourselves on that problem. So if we have... You know, say we walk into a field and we see what we believe is a nutrient deficient situation. Taking a tissue sample and comparing it to a part of that field that looks to be sufficient will normally tell you exactly what nutrient was deficient in that situation. In that scenario, it's a great tool for us, it's, and it's as good as it can get. A lot of times, when we take those tissue samples throughout the year, I think that they need to be looked at with soil samples that are taken in the fall before we make those fertility applications just based on one or the other. I think having both of them and gathering as much information as you possibly can is, is a great tool for us. And if you think you have a problem out there, double-checking that with a tissue sample is, is, a, is an absolutely good thing to do. With the micronutrients specifically, oftentimes you may see a response due to a micronutrient application, whereas you may not see that it is at what we would consider a critical level in that tissue itself. Um, so that's the kind of things where you've got to be somewhat careful with just relying on those tissue samples. You need to take into field history, crop history, soil samples, and all that into account before you make your decisions based solely on that. That being said, in season, a lot of times we get the question, you know, when should I be tissue sampling? You know, what crops should I be tissue sampling and what leaves are we getting? I think that's one of, I guess, one of the mistakes that I've seen is, you know, people just out there going to a plant and, and grabbing 10 leaves off of it. In soybeans, we want to take the youngest trifoliate off the top of those because that will tell you as that plant pushes those nutrients into that leaf, that should give you the best picture of what your nutrient content is of that plant. Um, the best timing for that to occur, the best picture of that plant is around the reproductive stages, R1, R2. I think we can get a good picture when we get there. As that plant really goes reproductive and it starts to sink all of its nutrients into the pods themselves, you may see that decline. So you could possibly have a, a tissue sample come back as deficient in a nutrient. It's certainly not good to have a deficiency at any point in the year, but if you have it and that plant is pushing so much into those reproductive structures of it, you could get a deficiency, whereas really you probably didn't have 
a true deficiency in that plant itself. It may just have fallen below that critical level because you took it so late, you know, petiole started to harden. Then when we move into corn, uh, we see a lot of ear leaf tissue samples. So basically the simplest thing is when that corn starts to produce an ear when it's, when it's little, um, and you can just see it. If you pull that leaf right off of that ear, that's going to have your best picture of that plant itself. That normally happens after tassel, about two weeks after tasseling, I would say, when you can really see that and get a good picture of. The issue with that is at that corn growth stage, it's a hard time to do anything based off a tissue sample. I mean, you've got, you've got a lot going on. That plant's already reproductive, already pushing nutrients to the ear, probably in the middle of pollinating. At that stage, it's a hard time to really make an in-season call based off of that. And then cotton is the same as soybeans. It's going to be your, your top leaf um, there, the, the, I guess the youngest leaf on the top of that plant uh, you want to send off for sampling. You talked about tissue sampling there. What should you expect back then from that particular laboratory where you've submitted those tissue samples in a form of a report? And how should farmers be considering that report? Whichever lab you're using probably is going to have a different form, which is why there's a lot of, I'm not saying confusion, but sometimes it's a little bit difficult to read. It takes a minute and you really have to dig in depth. Um, Most labs will now give you back a report with not only the content of what was in the tissue sample per se, but but normally they set a threshold or a critical level, which is I kind of spoke to there. And that's where things can can get a little tricky because certain labs will have different critical levels or what they would say a deficient level. The way I look at it is kind of, as I said before, the easiest way to really tell and get good at these tissue samples is where you think you may have a problem. Compare it to where you say your best, your best field is, your best crop. Take those tissue samples and set them side by side and say, what is different about this picture? And that's how those tissue samples in my fertility side of things, how we can really look at it and say, okay, now I'm getting a clear picture of why is this field, say, five to 10 bushels off Fertility-wise, is there possibly a nutrient deficiency? Is there possibly, is it having a difficulty getting mining nutrients out of this heavier soil texture than this lighter one? And that's where when you lay those two side by side and say, okay, this one is better than this one, why is that? You may be able to pull out a difference of, okay, it's lower in this than this field over here is. And you can go back and address those things in the fall or within the next season. Um, and so that's where, that's where I would be with those forms. I know they can be very confusing. There's a lot of numbers on there. They may even give you back a recommendation to go out in season. Um, but try to look at those raw numbers and that raw data and compare them for yourself. And that's where I believe it becomes sort of an art, as we talked about earlier. It's really how do those tissue samples work for, for your farm and on your program, and how can you use them as a tool to further your fertility program that you're running? Farmers shouldn't be shy about calling and asking about that. And I think that's an important step as well to know that sometimes interpreting those data and, and reading into what that report really tells you is pretty important. Absolutely. That's good advice. Call, call myself, call somebody with Mississippi State, call the lab where it came from. They'll, they'll certainly be happy. All of those people would be happy to talk you through it. All right, Justin, again, man, great content. Really enjoyed sitting down and visiting with you. If y'all keep hearing the bumps on Justin, that's because he's really animated and, and keeps bumping the mic. But that's fine, man. That's that's good. Can't uh, see him talking with his hands on yeah. a podcast, unfortunately. But we can bring that back around for But him. you can definitely see that he's really excited about what he does. And, again, we're glad. to. Have, I said that on the previous episode, but we're certainly proud that you're up there in Verona doing your thing and then you know taking time out of your schedule to come back down here to the delta and contribute as well so uh, we're going to jump off for now 
folks, if we can do anything for you, please don't hesitate to, to reach out. We hope you all are enjoying the content. If you are, let us know. And if you're, if you're not, let us know as well. Anything we can do to deliver you a better product is really what we're interested in doing here. So uh, we appreciate your time. Tom, do you have a parting shot? Um, thanks. We, we really appreciate the listener support at this point. That's, that's important for us. Justin? Well, I just appreciate it. Thank you for having me back. Look forward to doing it again. It's good to be back over here. It's good welcome, to see you. Welcome anytime, man. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.